Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. That's right, Mr. Pronouncer. People all over the world and around the globe support the Peter B. Collins Show, and you can do it too. Just click on You Can Help at PeterBCollins.com. Your voluntary subscription starts as little as $5 a month. And today I want to thank Anuel Rinaldi, Carl Hesterberg, and Mary Gruber, all monthly subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. They're setting a good example for you. Later in this podcast, allegations of hardball in the hydroponics industry. It was news to me, maybe to you too. You got the spare chain, you got to feel strange, and now the moment is all that Alabama. There's been some troubling news out of Alabama recently. The two United States senators are an embarrassment to the nation, and by proxy, I imagine, to many people in Alabama. Former Governor Don Siegelman's case remains unresolved. And my guy in Alabama is a great fellow named Roger Schuler, and he blogs like a son of a bitch at legalschnauzer.blogspot.com. And there's a little trick there. If you can't spell schnauzer, then you don't deserve to go there. <laughs> Roger, how are you doing today? Good, Peter. And as always, I like your music. A little Neil Young there. That goes back a few years. Well, that's a and, great song. And that's the song that uh, provoked Ronnie Van Zant into writing Sweet Home Alabama. Right, right, which uh, should kind of be sort of our, our state song, I guess, in a, in a way. But, uh, uh, but Neil Young, he... Uh, it's great to hear him then, and of course to know he's still a vibrant artist now. Well, and I met Ronnie before. Uh, I, I've met a couple of people before their planes went down, but uh, I, I went Ronnie. I, I met him before he died, and we did an interview, and everything was great until I asked him about politics. <laughs> really? Huh? Oh boy, did he have a redneck! Holy cow! <laughs> well... <laughs> he and he and Charlie Daniels, uh, two great musicians, fun-loving guys. But when you talk politics with them. <laughs> Oh, boy, it gets deadly in a hurry. Well, I guess they're from the the Ted Nugent side of the tracks a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. Well, Roger, I wanted to catch up with you on a number of uh, levels, and uh, your blog covers many of these issues, and some of them are based on your observation as an Alabaman who's paying attention there. But first up, uh, your Senator Shelby 
has been stinking up the joint in Washington with a massive abuse of his uh, discretion as a United States senator. And senators have this discretion to put a hold on a nomination made by an administration. And he's taken this to a whole new low. Uh, As many as 70 different Obama appointees uh, were put on ice for a couple of weeks as Richard Shelby uh, tried to throw his weight around and get the attention of the White House. And it wasn't about the qualifications of any individual of these nominees. It was about pork and military spending. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, uh, it it really... uh it makes Shelby look bad. It makes Alabama look bad. Uh, and uh, he, he has released most of the holds, but it, it really does seem like such a, a blatant example of, of obstructionism in the Senate. And uh, it, it involves a, uh, an Air Force uh, fueling tanker project that uh, there's competition uh, between a, I believe it's a France-owned company that's based in France and then Boeing. Yeah, the Airbus people. Right. The Airbus right. Consortium, we've all flown on their planes. Right. And if, if they were to get the project, a lot of it, uh, the construction would be done in, in South Alabama in the Mobile area. And if it were to go to Boeing, I believe it would be in Washington State uh, or, or elsewhere where they have locations. And, and, of course, Shelby has long been known as one of the real kings of pork uh, in Congress. And, uh, and also, I believe there's an, an FBI facility he's trying to get for Alabama related to terrorism. Uh, and so supposedly those two well, you got you got a lot of terrorists homegrown there in Alabama, right? <laughs> at the, at the, and how many mosques do you have there in Alabama? I'm just checking. Uh, not, I haven't seen one in a while. <laughs> and I try to pay attention. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, to, to put a hold, and I think you... You hit on the, the really the key issue there, Peter, is that he doesn't seem to be paying attention to the qualifications of people. Uh, it, it's just, uh, and, and that makes you wonder about, well, as you go back to the Siegelman case, the, the judge, Mark Fuller, and that was greatly approved by Richard Shelby mm-hmm. and Jeff Sessions. And, and so that, that makes you wonder, does he take these positions seriously? And what kind of people uh, does he approve? And uh it's almost like a, the boy who cried wolf story. You know, should you take anything he does seriously regarding federal nominations? And uh, so I, I think you hit on a, on a real key point there. Well, the, the other thing that I have to say is that the Obama administration has repeatedly sent signals, hey, we can be rolled. You know, all you got to do is accuse Van Jones of signing a petition calling for a new 9-11 commission or a, a new 9-11 investigation. Boom. He's out the door and under the bus. This uh, guy, uh, uh, his name was Rodney. I can't summon his last name, but eminently qualified to head the uh, airport security agency, the TSA. Uh, He's been running the security operation at uh, LAX, Los Angeles International. And he was bounced uh, after an objection from Senator Jim DeMint that he was too pro-labor. And he might try to unionize these uh, poor folks who are underpaid going through my pockets at the airport. And it, it just, it, you know, they've sent this message too often that we're not going to stand and fight over these nominees. Hey, we'll, we'll just toss this guy out and we'll bring in somebody more conservative. This also plays into the failure of the Obama administration to uh, require, as protocol dictates, every time uh, parties change in the, in the White House, 
it is very common to demand and accept the resignations of every U.S. attorney, there are 94 of them, who were appointed by the preceding administration. Uh, this was the practice that Karl Rove tried to uh, up the ante on and fire more of them in midterm that uh, initially brought attention to the way they were politicizing the U.S. attorney offices. And despite all of that that's on the record, the Obama administration hasn't replaced uh, critical Republican appointees, and uh, by allowing their nominees to replace some of those folks to be rolled, uh, we've created not only a backlog of of people who uh, haven't uh, been able to get on the job for President Obama, but we have continued to empower some of the most pernicious, partisan, political uh, appointees in the Justice Department who uh, remain employed despite the change in administration. Right. It, it's really uh, a black mark on, on the, the Obama administration's first year in office. And, and of course, it, right here in, in, in my state, in Montgomery, Laura Canary uh, is, is maybe one of the most blatant examples of, of what you're talking about, Peter, that she's still in office, uh, and largely because Shelby uh, supposedly, I don't know if he even put in a formal objection, but, but objected to a couple of people that were recommended by uh, Democratic committees here in the state and are quite highly regarded. And the Obama administration chose not to fight for those people. Uh, Michelle Necrosi from Mobile and Joseph Van Heest uh, from Montgomery were the two that were first put forward, and they've kind of been put on ice. And and really, I think, like you say, that, that sort of gives someone like Shelby the idea, hey, I can I can roll these people. You mm-hmm. know, they're they're not going to to fight for what they believe in, and uh, and we all know I think that Obama's a smart guy and 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 has a lot of smart people around him. Hopefully, they can learn from this. But uh, you know, Richard Shelby and, and Jeff Sessions, I mean, they're rattlesnakes. Uh, they, you know, you got to understand who you're who you're battling here, and. Uh, and hopefully they'll, they'll learn from this. Well, and, and this is why, I mean, I've been railing about this from the get-go, that Obama's, uh, what, what I can only call naive, his, his plea for bipartisanship, is, is just ridiculous, because these are two examples of hardliners who will never give an inch to this president or his administration. And whether it's on health care uh, you know, they'll, they'll remain silent when he ups the troop count in Afghanistan because that's an extension of Bush policies. And they'll remain silent when he continues to wiretap Americans and continues things, uh, policies that, uh, you know, related to the expansion of presidential power. Uh, but they're not going to go along on any of the agenda that is important to the base that elected Obama. Right. And that's... Uh... That, that's so critical, and and uh, and and, uh, and I think it, it's kind of interesting. Shelby and Sessions uh, are, are certainly two of the uh, I, I'd call them senatorial bullies, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so maybe it's it's a good thing that Alabama. Uh, I hate it for our state because there are a lot of good qualities about Alabama, but we always seem to to become the poster child for things like political prosecutions and senatorial abuse and. Uh, and and things of that nature, and uh, but yeah, the, I mean, when you play with these two senators from Alabama, they're they're going to play hardball, and they're they're not interested in matters of right and wrong. It, it's it's uh, it's a hard political uh, uh, money game. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Shelby 
I think it's pretty well established. It's taken a lot of money from various defense contractors and the big banks and so on, and that, that's where his, his interests lie. And Jeff Sessions gets my nomination for the Strom Thurmond Homophobia Award. Which Guys. sounds a lot like blatant homophobia to me. It's all about unit cohesion, you know? Happens left and right. That's why we must unite. We gotta stand and fight. Yeah, I mean, I give Obama credit for moving forward on his commitment to lift the ban on gays serving openly in the military. And uh, to, to see Bob Gates, who I have uh, little praise for, the holdover Republican Secretary of Defense, and uh, Mike Mullen of the Joint Chiefs, uh, go to Congress and make the case that it's, it's just downright uh, hypocritical and unattainable to maintain this a farce of don't ask, don't tell. And there's Jeff Sessions, along with uh, some of the other Neanderthal Republicans, echoing those remarks that Strom Thurmond made back when this bad compromise was forged after Bill Clinton uh, tried to uh, unilaterally impose it. And it was Sam Nunn, uh, the Democrat from Georgia, who really led the uh, the right-wing rearguard action to prevent uh, Clinton from simply lifting the ban free and clear. But now we're hearing them trot out those dated arguments, and uh, even John McCain uh, joins in with this idea of unit cohesion, as if uh, gays and lesbians, you know, are going to be pulling people's pants down and uh, forcing oral sex on them in the showers uh, or, you know, in a combat zone, that uh, they'll they'll want to try to recruit some straight-o potato guy and that, that this somehow is going to debilitate our military uh, of, of potential or, you know, the, the readiness to serve. Well, that, that's, uh, yeah, again, it, it's really sad that one of Alabama senators is in the forefront of something like that. And, and uh, my, this is just speculation on my part, but I wonder if, if Sessions is, is playing to that strong um, conservative church base that he has in our state, uh, uh, if, if that might be why he, uh, because you, you have people like Colin Powell and others who uh, are eminently qualified to, to comment on, on this kind of issue, uh, showing signs of growth, and, and yet you have Sessions uh, showing no signs of growth, which isn't a surprise, but I, I wonder if it's still a political uh, maneuver, you know, thinking of the, uh, you know, the the uh, religious right base that, that he gets here. Well, you know, the only thing missing from this little uh, show showbiz uh, hearings that, that they've been uh, setting up here is testimony from um, Ted Haggard and Larry Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see Larry Craig in there just tapping his toe away. And <laughs> this station presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. I'd forgotten Today, about this one. <laughs> we salute you, Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman. Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman. Most people go to the airport bathroom to relieve themselves before their next flight. 
but not you, no. You're looking to become a member of the Ground Level Club. Not what they mean by a layover. You All right, that, that's enough of that, but uh, <laughs> it was fun at the time. Do we, do we have any airport stories on Jeff Sessions? <laughs> None that I can confirm, but I, I love you. <laughs> You're playing hardball, Peter. B. I love that. And uh, uh, you know, it's, it, you do hear from periodically something in sessions of background. I don't know that anybody's ever been able to prove it uh, one way or another, uh, but uh, hopefully somebody will someday. But uh, he's he's a nasty little critter. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, <laughs> the Craig and Haggard uh, would be an interesting pair to to have testify about that. Apparently, Mrs. Haggard has written a, a "Don't Tell All" book, uh, and I heard her interviewed by Tom Hartman last week. Oh, and it was just excruciating because uh, you know he was asking her very fair questions about her attitudes toward gays and whether homosexuality is is God given and. Uh, she just, you know, she was clutching her Bible and uh, just trying to squirm out of, of any meaningful statement that she could make. Uh, she basically wanted to say that she forgave Ted, and uh, just like Larry Craig, he's not really gay. Oh, okay, right. And, and he just went to the guy, was it in Denver, the the masseuse, and, and right. so forth, just happened to pick that out? Yeah, you know, blowjob and meth, uh, that's not gay. Um <laughs> The the other thing, this just came across in my email recently, a New York Times CBS poll on the Don't Ask, Don't Tell issue uh, produced some uh, kind of bizarre results. If you ask the question, do you favor allowing gay men and lesbians to serve in the military, uh, 70% of the respondents say yes. But if you use the term homosexual, it drops precipitously to uh, 59% among Democrats and even lower among Republicans. So wow. the, the, the fear of, of gays um, is really, you know, still quite prevalent. And that's a national survey. Uh, that's not, not limited to, uh, you know, conservative states. So uh, it, it's, it is bizarre to me that uh, at, at this stage of things that, you know, when, when we're fighting over marriage rights and other critical issues for gays to, you know, be given full citizenship, that people are still trying to cling to uh, this outdated compromise that never made sense in the first place. Well, that, that's so true, Peter. And it, it's such a part of our culture here in Alabama, politically, in, in, in an ugly way, and really in the Siegelman case. Uh, you, you might have read where uh, you know the key witness against Siegelman was his aide Nick Bailey, mm-hmm. and in the the motion for a new trial, a number of people have uh, signed affidavits saying that basically Nick Bailey. I don't know whether he's gay or not, but I, I think prosecutors use the fear that that charge would, I guess, charge is the right word, would be leveled against him as uh, as part of you know to get him to testify in the way that he did. And and also, of course, Jill Simpson, one of the things uh, when she was a Republican and working against Democrats, you know, she said that they she was assigned to try to get photos of Siegelman in a compromising position. And, and, and that's been used uh, in our state against Democrats. Almost every prominent Democrat I can think of in Alabama, you know, the, the, before too long a year, oh, they're gay. And I don't know if George Wallace started that or... Uh, or who, but it, it's it's right there to this day. Hmm. <laughs> and is is there a whisper that Siegelman is gay or bi? Well, uh, I, 
I've never heard that, or, but from what I understand, it's part, like I say, it's uh, part of the, uh, uh, I think that the Republican folks, when Jill Simpson uh, was asked to, to follow him, you know, try to, that, that's what I think, I think she has said that that's what uh, they were looking for, but, mm-hmm. it, but she didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's funny on on one hand they, they can't seem to make up their mind about Siegelman. On the one hand, they you know they try to you know, whisper, send whisper campaigns that he's gay, but on the other hand, he's he's like this motorcycle thing that you know rides Harleys and <laughs> you know, this uber macho guy. And and the, the one thing I know truthfully is that Siegelman is uh, is a very much a martial arts guy. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought it would be justice to just let him loose in a room with the Rove and some of these other people and see who walks out. Because <laughs> Siegelman is, is evidently is in great, he's a fitness fanatic and a martial arts guy and mm-hmm. uh, can more than handle himself. But Interesting. Uh, now, one of the other tangents here related to the Siegelman case that I wanted to get your comment on is that one of Lura Canary's deputies, uh, and Lura Canary, for people who are just coming to this story, we have previous podcasts that you're welcome to listen to. But she is married to Bill Canary. Bill Canary uh, is a political consultant who was a partner of Karl Rove in electing corporatist judges uh, to Supreme Courts in Alabama, Texas, and elsewhere. This is something we discussed in our most recent podcast with Kevin Zeese. And Stephen Figa or Fiaga, F-E-A-G-A, uh, has been a deputy to Lura Canary in the U.S. Attorney's Office there in central Alabama. And he apparently is up for an appointed post under the Obama administration that would, and this is, this is really Kafka-esque, would transfer him to Guantanamo Bay, where he would serve as a counsel to the defense. In other words, representing alleged terror suspects. Right. I mean, the, the irony of that, Peter, you don't know where to begin, almost. Uh, and uh, and he's uh, the one who evidently was behind, I, I just mentioned Nick Bailey, uh, the, the, these pressure tactics uh, that were applied to him. Uh, and I, I've pronounced it Fiega, and I'm not sure that, that I'm pronouncing that right, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the, you know, he, he had uh, Bailey uh, interrogated, I think, 70 or 80 times, and supposedly, you know, apparently there were notebooks that weren't turned over to the defense and notes. and. Uh, well, they, they coached this witness. I mean, 70 interviews, and didn't they each time require him to write out statements in longhand, and then they'd critique them and say, well, no, 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 that's not quite there. Right. We need you to say it this way. Uh in fact, uh, Tamara Grimes, uh, a whistleblower in that Montgomery office, uh, has quoted, I believe there was an FBI agent who was involved, uh, said there, there were, in that case, there were there was the truth, there were facts, and there were Fiega facts. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and those were the facts that he generated from pressure uh, on uh, on Nick Bailey, who, who was the absolutely key witness. I mean, he, uh, he, he was the number one reason that there wound up being a prosecution at all and and a conviction uh, and uh, so it, it's frightening to think that someone with that kind of background that this Fiega would would be considered for uh, a position having to do with Guantanamo and terror suspects under the Obama administration of, of all people well and we when we tie this together with the news that Scott Horton broke and that's in a preceding podcast here too at peterbcollins.com 
He's a Columbia University uh, law instructor, and he writes quite ably for Harper's Magazine. Harper's, by the way, is in financial trouble, and uh, I hope they survive. Uh, And in the March issue, the cover story, which we have uh, previewed uh, with an interview with Scott on on this program, he uh, goes into great detail, very uh, well-sourced, well-reported information, including eyewitness accounts from people who were on duty at Guantanamo. I believe the date is June 9, 2006, when three prisoners were transferred from the main camp to what was previously a secret black site, uh, located just across the hill from Camp Delta, uh, which is uh, doesn't have a technical name, but it's nicknamed Camp No. And these three men were transferred there all in one evening, and when they returned, they were dead. And the official story is that they killed themselves by stuffing rags down their throats and then hanging themselves in their cells. Uh, it's extremely far-fetched, given the security measures uh, and sharp limits on their access to even extra bed sheets um, that that uh, this story doesn't fly, and of course it was <clears throat> pardon me the guild the lily was gilded by one of the uh, commanders uh, or a Pentagon spokesperson who said yeah this this was a you know an evil act of asymmetrical warfare that these three killed themselves uh, in order to embarrass the United States. And this is such a a crock of shit, frankly, and a a concocted set of stories. And it clearly triggers the relaxed standard that Eric Holder, the attorney general, set for investigations of those who committed torture. He's saying, well, if if you only did the stuff that was in the John Yoo memos and the Donald Rumsfeld memos, then we won't investigate or prosecute. But if you went beyond that, we will. Well, these three cases scream. Uh, for investigation and prosecution, but the Justice Department seems intent on closing those cases without any further action. And so to inject a guy like Figo Friaga, however he says his name, uh, into this poisonous atmosphere where Obama is going to, at least in some respects, uh, in some cases, continue the use of military commissions, which, uh, you know, don't have credibility, they're, they're kangaroo courts, um, th- this is a pretty odious mix, Roger. Well, it, it sure is, Peter, and, and I, um, it, we're very proud of Scott Horton here. Now, he, he's an Alabama native and, uh, and has probably been, well, not probably, definitely, has been the leading uh, chronicler, uh, if I pronounce that correctly, of, of, about the Siegelman story. That's right. And really has turned it. And now, of course, as you know, he's a very bright uh, Columbia University uh, law faculty adjunct, and I believe maybe at Hofstra, too, and uh, just a very bright guy who writes very well and very thoughtfully and um, and is doing some really, he's a lawyer by training, but is doing some really important journalism on, on this story. And uh, and I'm glad to, to see that, that you're helping uh, educate the public about this and well, you know, Scott Horton got one national interview on Keith Olbermann when he broke the story, and uh, from there it's a wall of silence. He said he gets calls every day from journalists in other parts of the world, but this story is completely, well, again, save Olbermann, is, is blacked out in the United States. That, that is so tragic uh, to see the flow of information constricted and restricted for what have to be political reasons. 
Right. It, it is alarming. And, and I believe Scott has reported uh, just recently as a follow-up to this that uh, officials, I believe, in Spain and, and perhaps Canada, uh, Peter, you might know more about this than I do, but that they're, they're interested in investigating uh, torture techniques that were allegedly used on their citizens. Spain is the most likely location, and there are other European nations that have what's called original jurisdiction. And so there there certainly may be investigations and trials uh, off our shores. Um, Also, the British uh, lifted the veil uh, just in the the past 24 hours on the information regarding the torture of Binyam Mohammed. And he was uh, one of the first uh, Gitmo prisoners released by the Obama administration last February. And despite that release, they have blocked his efforts to sue for justice in American courts, citing citing state secrets. And they muscled the British to keep uh, the information about his torture under wraps uh, until the British courts uh, intervened and and basically said no dice. And this, this is just another inexplicable effort by the Obama administration to cover up the clear crimes and wrongdoing of the Bush administration. And, and it just drives me crazy, Roger. Yeah, well, it, I share your, your those feelings, uh, Peter, and we've written quite a bit at, at my blog uh, about the uh, this notion of, I call it the, the look forward, not backward uh, policy that they seem to have. And, uh, and it's just so nonsensical. I, I mean, you... you Obviously, you have to look backward to, to move forward. Well, and, and take a moment here to uh, 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 in, inflate your post a little bit about Rahm Emanuel, and uh, even his phrasing isn't correct. He was quoted as saying, we're not relitigating the past, and he has sent signals through intermediaries to Eric Holder to underscore that message. Right. That, that came uh, from an, a very good article uh, that your readers might be already familiar with out of the, I believe it's in the current New Yorker, uh, that, that is largely about Eric Holder. It's sort of a profile and particularly his policies uh, regarding terror. And it's written by Jane Mayer. Right. Who and did very, the, the Dark well Side book and, about And as you read farther, fairly far down in the story, it gets into a lot of material about Emanuel and, and this quote that he has about we're not relitigating the past. And uh, the message I take from the story is, is that maybe Emmanuel is driving this train about, uh, you know, just turn a blind eye to the wrongs of the Bush administration. And the Holder, uh, you know, it seems, comes off as more sympathetic in, in this story, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, relitigating, re, these, haven't, these issues haven't been litigated the first time. Right? Amen! And, uh, and it's just... Uh, and it's just a real kick in the teeth to progressives and liberals. The well, uh, hey, how about just uh, constitutionalists? Exactly. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to be a liberal to want justice. Right. And, and, and to right, right and wrongest. <laughs> yeah. To to put limits on abuses of constitutional rights. Right. This this is not a partisan political issue, and it's also not optional. You know, the the is, is Rahm Emanuel next going to say ah, you know. We, we've convicted too many rapists in the last couple of years. We're going to take a year off of rape prosecutions and, uh, and uh, trials. You know, it's going to save us money. And, uh, you know, that, that is, is something that people would scream bloody murder and say, you can't possibly do that. Well, how different is it to say that we are not going to investigate or prosecute these issues? Oh, 
Yeah, and, and uh, it just makes no sense uh, in terms of law and order and justice. And and uh, and we've written recently, uh, kind of backing up to uh, January, uh, a little over a year ago, when just before Obama took office, that you know he had a website where people could write in about their concerns, and the number one concern was uh, about investigation of Bush era wrongdoing, mm-hmm. and. And, that, and that, he was asked about that by George Stephanopoulos, and that's when he uttered the famous "look forward, not backward" phrase. And uh, and I, I think it, it's put. I think it's hurting him politically. Uh, we've raised the, the issue on the blog about you know was that part of what went into the Scott Brown victory in Massachusetts? Now I'm, I'm sure there were a number of things that that went into that that you know that bad outcome, but. Uh, but you do wonder if, if progressives are, are starting, to, uh, or, or liberals, or like you say, just people who care about right and wrong, mm-hmm. are, are you know, just not showing up at the polls. Yeah. Now, uh, Roger, let's take a couple of minutes here to catch up on the, the Siegelman case. And uh, just a quick recap, there were two attempts to convict him. The first uh, didn't work, so they brought up uh, new charges and they were successful. He was convicted, uh, sentenced, I think, seven and a half years in federal prison. Mark Fuller, the judge, uh, clearly should have recused himself. Uh, he's not only partisan, but uh, he appears to regularly violate the ethics rules of, uh, of lifetime-appointed federal judges uh, through a corporation that he owns that does business with the government. Um, in addition, uh, you know, uh, Fuller failed to release the transcripts so that uh, Siegelman couldn't file a timely appeal and also could not uh, get out on bail as the appeal was being processed. And so every step of the way, we saw that Siegelman was railroaded, uh, his rights were sharply limited or denied, and uh, punitive measures were taken to punish this guy for being a Democrat in a, in a red state. And uh, I wanted to just get your take on where the current status is, because once again, the Holder Justice Department appears to be wanting to tighten the screws on Don Siegelman, not give him the judicial relief that he appears to deserve. Right. Uh, well, the, one of the most outrageous uh, events that took place recently, uh, is Siegelman's case is, there uh, uh, has been a request to the U.S. Supreme Court to have it heard, and uh, Elena Kagan, I believe, if I'm pretty, the Solicitor General for That's Obama, right. uh-huh. uh, filed a, uh, a counter motion, I guess you would say, uh, saying that you shouldn't hear it. And, uh, and my understanding is that her office was not obligated to file anything at all. They, so they, that was they, a gratuitous friend of the court brief. Right. I, I think that's a good way to put it. And uh, and they, they could have just been silent, but they actually filed a motion saying that this should not be heard, that the, the trial court got it right and the 11th Circuit got it right, when they, they clearly did not get it right. And uh, and so that, that's one of the there, – there also are, are motions for a new trial, but those are before the very same judge, who Fuller, who ramrodded it the first time. And a lot of these documents uh, – that are uh, supporting the, the the conviction are still being done by Laura Canary's people uh, b- because she's still in office, and uh, so it, it's just uh, the Obama administration uh, on the just the whole justice. Uh, what we've really been talking about mostly here, Pierre, I think, just is, has really been uh, gotten an F <laughs> really so far. I mean, if you had to give them a grade, it would not be a good grade, and. 
Uh, you might have seen the piece where one of his former mentors from Harvard Law School has criticized him for being uh, complacent, I think is the word he used for the administration, and really yeah. pointed a finger at Rahm Emanuel and that there, there needs to be change in that chief of staff position. And That's, that's Chris Edley, who is the uh, dean of the law school at Berkeley, who on the one hand is critical of Obama, rightly, and on the other hand continues to protect John Yoo, uh, citing academic freedom. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, yeah, he's right out there in your neck of the woods. And, and uh, but yes, I mean, the, the, Siga, the Obama administration has not so far distinguished itself on the, the Siegelman case. And, and it truly is a case of, of, of people being convicted and put in prison for actions that just they're not crimes. <laughs> you know, yeah. it'd be like, uh, you know, Convicting you or me for uh, you know for looking out our window, and I mean it's not a crime, and uh, uh, and that's really what it boils down to. And and of course, as you know, the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court only hears just a small fraction of, of the cases that are that people apply for. So so that right. the percentages aren't good. But it, you know the Siegelman case is so well known and. Well, and it's hard to imagine that the Roberts court would find in his favor. He's really rolling the dice there, because if they decline to hear the case, the uh, appeals court decision stands. And if they do hear the case, uh, who knows what Antonin Scalia will do. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> after after the, uh, you know, with the, the decision recently on the, the corporate personhood story, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I know you've talked about that. And, and so, yeah, I, I mean, our, our Supreme Court... Uh, uh, as you go back to 2000 and the, the Bush-Gore decision, and here we are in 2010, it, it, it hadn't hadn't improved any, doesn't seem like. Yeah. Now, um, Roger, I just want to take a moment here, because you had high praise for Scott Horton on the Siegelman case, and uh, that has to be shared with you and with Larissa Alexandrovna from rawstory.com, because really the three of you did a lot of uh, original investigation and stayed with the story, after the corporate media uh, uh, showed no interest or, for political reasons, declined to cover it. And uh, I give you a lot of credit there. And in a post that you have about Senator Shelby and these massive holds that he put on, you discuss this uh, company that is primarily owned by Judge Mark Filler, uh, Fuller, uh, DOS Aviation. They are a military contractor. And uh, I believe that Fuller is one of the judges who has a completely blank uh, biography uh, when you try to look him up uh, on the government websites, and they don't talk about DOS aviation. And you make linkage between Senator Shelby, uh, suggesting he has a financial interest in this murky company. What can you tell us about DOS aviation, Shelby, and Fuller? Well, that's a, that's a real interesting subject. Uh, DOS is actually based in Colorado, and uh, and I believe the company got passed down through the through his family to Fuller. And uh, there, there's a interesting that that it, it it's listed at a at an address in Montgomery, Alabama, in a in a building where Richard Shelby had an office, and this was before Fuller was even a, a federal judge. He was still based uh, in uh, in a little town enterprise. Uh, and, uh, and Scott Horton has written about that as, as to, you know, why was this mailbox uh, uh, in, in Montgomery? Uh, and then Jill Simpson uh, has stated that uh, 
Greg Craig, who was uh, Obama's uh, White House counsel for a while, uh, he consulted with her before she testified uh, before Congress that he he told her that Richard Shelby is an owner of DOS Aviation. Uh, and if that that has not been proven, uh, to my knowledge, through documents or so forth, but uh, that, that raises all sorts of questions about perhaps uh, money that, Shelby has directed to his own company, to his own benefit, and um, and I, I'm pretty sure he hasn't declared any financial interest in that company. I'm, I'm not sure how it's hidden. Uh, you get into some real stockholder business issues there, uh, and I wonder if that's one reason he's he's really intent on trying to control who becomes U.S. attorney in Montgomery. I think if a real hard-nosed U.S. attorney uh, in Montgomery were to look into the Doss, Shelby, Fuller, uh, they might find some real interesting things. Uh, but, but Scott Horton probably has done some of the best reporting on that, and, uh, and Jill Simpson has, has made statements, too, about what, what Greg Craig told her. But, mm-hmm. but he, he essentially said that he couldn't help her because of his ties to Richard Shelby, and uh, that he had a conflict of interest, and evidently he also told her that part of that was uh, due to Shelby's interest in Doss Aviation. And, uh, so but that, there, there's a lot. Uh, that's still a murky storyline. There, we still don't know. There's a lot we still don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it, Shelby is. Uh, it would be interesting to see somebody really get to the bottom of, of what you know. Who's pulling his strings? Yeah. Now, one other thing about the Siegelman case that I wanted to ask you about because um, late one night when I got tired of Facebook, uh, I looked up the uh, uh, the Atlanta appeals court decision in the Siegelman appeal. And there was a facet there that I had never heard anything about uh, before in in the coverage uh, as good as it's been from you and Horton and uh, Raw Story. And uh, I've also interviewed Governor Siegelman at least a dozen times, and uh, he never volunteered the information, and I didn't have the thread to ask the right question. But it involves uh, the gift of a motorcycle worth about $10,000, it was given to Siegelman while he was governor. And then at some point afterward, he uh, uh, seemed to be uh, concocting some paperwork uh, to make it look like he had paid for it or a friend of his had paid for it. And uh, it's not central to the case. Uh, I, I want to you know, quickly acknowledge that. But it does speak to a kind of a low-level corruption and a wink and a nod, uh, perhaps a violation of, of ethics or gift rules. Uh, I, I just have to say that it, it didn't smell good to me when I read the passages about Siegelman and this motorcycle transaction. Right. It, it's, uh, it's kind of a complicated part of, of, the, of, a, of a broad, complicated case. Uh, I think the government alleged that uh, a, a lobbyist named Lanny Young, who, who, who along with Nick Bailey, they were the two primary witnesses in the uh, in the case, and that Young periodically would do things or make contributions for Siegelman in exchange for favorable government action, uh, and and they allege that one of these favorable um, or, or one of these favors that he did for Siegelman was to uh, to help purchase a motorcycle for I believe about ninety two hundred dollars and. Uh, and the government's allegations go on to show that there was some some check writing going back and forth uh, that uh, Siegelman and Bailey got wind that the government was looking into this, and so they 
they wrote checks back and forth to try to hide it, I think, to make it look like a loan as opposed to, to something that, that Young had, had given him. Uh, and it's, it's unclear to me whether Siegelman actually ever received a motorcycle or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure if he ever actually got it. The, uh, and interestingly, uh, in uh, the, uh, uh, the 11th Circuit, overturned the honest services fraud uh, findings against Siegelman and left the bribery and also left the one count uh, that relates to this, the motorcycle, and, that, and that's an obstruction of justice charge. And so that, that's still out there. Uh, there are actually two counts, interestingly, uh, related to this motorcycle deal. There was one had to do with, with a first check that, that, was, that went one direction, and then the second count went had to do with a second check that went back the other direction as, as, as what the government called a, a cover-up. And interestingly, the jury, uh, uh, the original jury, uh, acquitted on the first count and convicted on the second, which seems to me to be a strange outcome uh, for, the, for the whole thing. So it, it's very murky. It does smell bad, uh, Peter. I think particularly because it's an object, it's a familiar object that we can all identify with what motorcycles are. There also were some, uh, in, the, uh, in the general news reporting about the Siegelman case, uh, about oh, some warehouse deals and things that, uh, that also smelled kind of bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the government actually didn't pursue that element of it much. It really ultimately boiled down to the, the alleged or supposed quid pro quo between Siegelman and Richard Scrushy. Uh, over the, uh, the, He's the health, he was the Health South CEO, right? The Health South CEO who who currently is in prison, mm-hmm. uh, and while Siegelman's out uh, on on appeal, uh, but the, 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 there were some th- like you say the warehouse, the motorcycle, some things that uh, that that don't come under the heading of what you think of as being good government, right? Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, on the other hand, they they were not. I think really the warehouse turned out not to be a part of the case at all, and the motorcycle became kind of a what you might call a tangential part of the case. So, well, and in any event, it's hard to see how it's a federal crime. Uh, you know, the the motorcycle deal again. I don't know all the facts, but just if it were in some way uh, not up to snuff, it, it would be a, a a state misdemeanor. Most likely, I, I think that's right. It, it, as I understand obstruction of justice, and I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, just to make sure your your listeners know, but uh, I, I can sort of compare it to conspiracy. Conspiracy is a is a crime that that can't stand on its own. It has mm-hmm. to, you know, there has to be a conspiracy to do something, uh, like conspiracy to commit wire fraud, for example. And I think obstruction of justice is like that too. It, it has to have a it sort of piggybacks on some other charge. Right. And, and I think that it sort of piggybacked on the, the bribery and the honest services fraud charges. Um, and I think ultimately they, they claimed that this, uh, that Siegelman uh, tried to, uh, to hide this from Bailey's attorney. Uh, and, and thus from, uh, I guess Bailey's attorney was involved with the federal investigators. And uh, it's, it gets kind of convoluted and... Uh, and and again, it, it's it is sort of a, a tangential charge, but it also does smell kind of ugly, and it's still out there legally. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it the Eleventh Circuit upheld that uh, component of the case. And, yeah. Uh, 
But if you get a chance, you, know, you might ask Siegelman if you get a. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my guess is that he considers it sort of a sidebar issue, and not, and that maybe that's why he hasn't uh, discussed it. The case mm-hmm. is already kind of complicated enough. Sure uh, is, yeah. <laughs> and that, that may be why. Why? Uh, but but it's interesting. I, I'm I'm still not sure, and I live here. Whether he actually ever had a motorcycle that he was riding down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, we'll have to. Well, I'll ask him next time I talk with him. And yeah. and finally, Roger, I wanted to get your take because as I look at your blog, and this entry is dated Thursday, February 11th, you have something that uh, I have not seen anywhere else, which is that some of the key supporters of the new senator from Massachusetts, Scott Brown, were from the debt collection industry. And apparently uh, your wife uh, lost a job over some problems with uh, debt collectors. I'm not saying you're a deadbeat and they were calling your house. Uh, but why don't you explain first the, briefly the, the issue with your wife and then uh, a little bit larger about Scott Brown and the role of uh, this murky, you know, most people have no idea there is a debt collection industry. Right. Well, we uh, are, one of the reasons I started a blog is because of, of my personal experience in court here in Alabama. A, a neighbor filed a, a, a bogus lawsuit against us, and we had to defend it, and that cost us a whole bunch of money. I mean, you'd, you'd be amazed when a lawyer to defend you is charging, say, $300 an hour, how quickly that can add up. Oh, and, yeah. And it hurt our personal finances, and and we did start hearing, uh, particularly on a, on an American Express account, uh, we started hearing phone calls from people, and and of course they're they're trying to collect a, a debt is is perfectly legitimate, but uh, there's a law called the FDCPA that governs that, and and you're supposed to to do it in a certain way, and if you don't, you're violating the law. Right. And and we wound up filing a lawsuit. In fact, it's going on now over with a big corporation called NCO and a, and a local law firm alleging that they didn't follow the FDCPA in our case. And 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 we think that my wife's loss of her job is, uh, is sort of dovetails with action in that lawsuit. Uh, so that's kind of the personal side of it. Mm-hmm. The, the broader side of it is that uh, the debt collection industry, which is a billion-dollar huge industry, uh, they were profiled recently on Dateline NBC a few months back, did a big piece about the, it's really an ugly industry. Uh, for, they just don't do things correctly because the law is very weak. But they they heavily supported Scott Brown uh, in Massachusetts, both financially and with their, uh, I think they did call campaigns. <laughs> yeah, and they, interestingly, uh, because they have a lot of calling uh, strength, I guess. Yeah, they've got the resources to interrupt people's dinner for one reason or another. Right, and uh, and they evidently and they're quite proud of it. They're they're quite proud of the fact that they helped get Scott. Their, in fact, their association has issued a press release. And but one of the things very interesting to me is that that their industry is is against health care reform. And apparently, one reason is that one of the biggest reasons people get into debt is is because of health. Uh, cost, health costs due to not having proper insurance. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we had a, a forward-thinking, uh, you know, modern day like European countries and others have a health, well, people would be less likely to go into debt, and and that would be bad for debt collectors. So <laughs> these people, they they want us, they want us sick, and they want us with debt. And uh, that's good for them, <laughs> and, and it's really perverse. And they uh, they went out and by golly, they got Scott Brown elected, and uh, 
So, and of course, even though that's just in Massachusetts, as you know, it it has profound uh, implications potentially for all of us nationwide. And uh, and the funny thing, no, it's not funny, but in a in a black humor kind of way, my wife and I, we'd always we had no idea about what the debt collection. We we'd always been very lucky to have good credit mm-hmm. until this this legal problem came up and. Uh, and we've learned a whole lot about it. They'll, they'll uh, you know, the original creditor. A lot of times they'll sell these debts. They'll sell them to. They're called third-party debt buyers, yeah. and they'll they'll buy these bad debts for pennies on the dollar, and then try to get people to pay. And and a lot of times they don't have any proof that you even owe the debt. Right. In fact, we know in our own lawsuit. In fact, I've got the paper here. They admit they had no proof at all that that we owed this alleged debt to American Express, but they. They were harassing us and and threatening to sell our house on the courthouse steps and uh, you know just oh I mean and I the good thing in our case I tape tape recorded it if if I can give any advice to your listeners if you do get a call from a debt collector tape record it hmm. because there's a good chance they'll lie and violate the law and uh, and if you've got it on tape uh, you've got a much better chance of prevailing uh, later on. And that, that's my tip of the day. <laughs> and uh, I'm legal schnauzer. And does your sweet wife have a blog too? No, she doesn't. But she <laughs> um, she contributes a lot behind the scenes to to my blog. Uh, she gives me ideas and proofreads, and and she's a, she's a big part of it. Uh, and and of course our uh, our pets have kind of inspired it. And uh, but yeah, she she plays a big big behind the scenes role in it. Well, and I want people to go to legalschnauzer.blogspot.com to catch up on the latest Alabama news, including an update on uh, Roger's uh, uh, battle with the University of Alabama over his wrongful termination. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I learn a lot. And uh, you keep blogging now, will you? Well, Peter, will do. And it's great to talk to you. It's funny... uh uh, uh, we get very little, uh, kind of like Scott Horton was saying. You, you know, it, it, we did what I do gets very little attention from Alabama radio stations. Or, but but it, it's it's great to hear uh, folks like you in other parts of the country realize that uh, the Alabama story has is important uh, on on a on a national level. All right, sir. Thanks a lot. We'll talk again. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Roger Schuler at legalschnauzer.blogspot.com. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, and our program is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Right on my homepage, see the little box and click on it, and you will qualify for a special introductory offer for Peter B. Collins Show listeners. Coming soon, the Organic Wine Club will have the details for you in a week or two. Up next here on the program, we're going to learn about hardball in the hydroponics industry. Marijuana is the number one cash crop in the state of California, and it is legal for medicinal use. By vote of the people a few years back, 
An initiative permits uh, the possession of certain amounts of marijuana and cultivation of certain amounts for personal medical use. And there is an ad hoc system that certainly isn't perfect, but you can apply for and receive a card that uh, says you are a uh, medical marijuana user and uh, that uh, exempts you from local law enforcement. And uh, under the Obama administration, there is kind of a uh, uh, unofficial holiday on prosecution of the marijuana medical marijuana distribution clubs that have sprung up, become quite prolific and highly profitable, uh, particularly in urban centers around the state. Now, some of that marijuana is grown in the great outdoors, some of it illegally on federal lands, some of it on uh, farmlands, particularly in the northern part of the state. I used to uh, have a radio show that was uh, featured every day in Humboldt County, and I used to talk to a lot of the uh, pot growers and uh, people who were a part of that industry on a regular basis. And joining me now is a guy called Big Mike, Michael Straumaitis. Uh, it's a long Greek name. Yes, Straumaitis. I, I wrote it out uh, phonetically, and I'm still having trouble with it. Straumaitis. And he, it's a good Latvian name. There you go. It's Latvian, not Greek. I'm sorry. Yes, there you go. All right. And he is the CEO of Advanced Nutrients, which is a leading developer and manufacturer of hydroponic nutrients and technology. Big Mike, welcome to our show today. It's nice to meet you. Hey, great to be on the show, Peter B. Now, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in and get involved in the hydroponics industry. This is growing plants indoors with uh, grow lights and often... uh, there are, are systems set up to water the plants, to retain moisture uh, in the environment that's created. Right, in environmental controls. And yeah, they, some of them are very simple to very, very sophisticated, depending on how much the grower wants to spend and invest. And so how what, I, what drew how you? How I got started was simply in 1980, I walked into a place in the Calvary, Illinois, called Phyto Farms. They were making lettuce for United Airlines, and it just blew me away. And I said, I want to discover more. And I just started digging in to the world of hydroponics. And one thing led to the next. And uh, I started growing hydroponically. I didn't like the nutrients that are out there. I thought they could be, there could be a much better quality product to our community. I said, I'm just going to give it a try. I'm going to make some nutrients. So I made some nutrients, gave them to some friends. They thought they were absolutely fantastic. They told their friends. And the thing just kind of spread on its own. They said, you should make this stuff. So got a little warehouse and opened it up and uh, started making nutrients. And uh, they took off in the marketplace. And you know, now we're $30 million a year company in, in uh, 51 countries around the world. Really? And what is the length of your product line? Is it the nutrients and also the hardware that people use? Right now, it's, it's the nutrients. Now, we're just starting to get into the hardware, bulbs, ballast, and reflectors. But for the last seven years... It's been strictly just the nutrients. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I don't want to be coy because, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, a lot of hydroponic growing is related to marijuana, but you can grow roses and, as you mentioned, lettuce and tomatoes. Uh, Anything that grows can be grown uh, more efficiently, and often uh, the plants are more robust and their their fruit or other output is, is tastier, richer. Uh, So what percentage of the industry is for uh, growing marijuana, medical or otherwise, and uh, what's the balance used to grow other uh, non-pot plants? In, in the past, 
past, it's been mostly uh, marijuana growers. However, today, that is quickly switching just because of people want to have a better quality uh, crop to eat in home. And also, these little arrow gardens, uh, you see them all over the place. You see them in Costco now. So a lot of people are being introduced to hydroponics, and they like it, and they're, they're enjoying it. So more and more people actually are, are is coming, going to the mainstream very quickly. So uh, in the past, I would say 90% would be growing their medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. Now it's probably closer to 60-40, 50-50 it's, it's moving to, just because of the, the Arrow Garden and some other uh, these home units that you can buy. And a lot of people are discovering they, they want to be in control of their own food supply. They don't want a bunch of chemicals, pesticides, and all these other kind of things that uh, crops have on them. Well, and there are practical reasons. Uh, people who live in urban areas can have either an indoor or a rooftop garden. Uh, I, I live on a hillside where the deer come in and uh, snatch anything that I try to grow. And sure. so I, I need to grow on decks or in protected areas. And so, you know, there are, there's a lot of horticulture that uh, people can engage in. Probably aren't aware of it, but when they go in and they buy from their tomatoes and, and English cucumbers and bell peppers, the majority of those are grown hydroponically these days. So the, our own food supply, high percentage of what we're eating is hydroponically growing in, in big commercial greenhouses these days. Now, you heard me uh, mention our sponsor, the Organic Wine Company. Are you aware of any grapes that are being grown organic? Uh, I mean, hydroponically? No, I'm, I'm not, but I have been in Napa Valley, and I have talked to a lot of the uh, uh, the vineyards, and a, a lot of them are going to uh, organic. I, I see the challenge in, in that is the, the taste, for some reason. The flavor of the wine isn't as intense, they say, when it's grown organically as it is, though I believe over time that will absolutely change. Now, just the other day, I was driving uh, north into Sonoma County on Highway 101, and uh, I had just read your op-ed piece, and to the right side of the highway was Funny Farms Hydroponics. Now, okay. that, that name suggests uh, the kind of wink and a nod uh, that the industry appears to be committed to, and that is, uh, as you said, uh, at least in the past, uh, 90% of their products were sold to pot growers, Yet they try to maintain uh, uh, an image that denies uh, that that is a at least a major portion of their clientele, if not the vast majority. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. The majority of store owners actually actually have a counterpoint to that. Not a counterpoint, but look at it. They realize that where their business is coming from and want to be able to honor that and help the medical marijuana patients. However, in this industry, the guys who are the major distributors, Sunlight Supply, Hydrofarm, and Bloomington Wholesale, are not allowing them to engage the, uh, their end user and help them grow a better crop to help them medicate themselves. They just uh, said, basically, if you engage and talk to a patient about medical marijuana, we will not sell to you. In fact, none of of us who are the the monopoly in this industry will essentially putting you out of business. So why is there a a hydroponic mafia that is trying to enforce this kind of denial 
in the face of the legalization of uh, medical marijuana cultivation in California, now New Jersey, with some pretty tight strictures on the law, but still, uh, you are able to grow and possess uh, medical marijuana, even in the Garden State of New Jersey. Why are these companies uh, still operating with a kind of 1980s, you know, Reagan-era drug war mentality? Fear. And, and they don't understand the marketplace. They do not want to honor the community. They really don't care about our community, uh, even though that is where the backbone of their income has come from over the years and allowed them to be able to grow to collectively a $300 million a year organization. And yet they just refuse it. I, I, I believe that, that we've I've always been pretty open about medical marijuana from the very time that we started our company. And they just absolutely hate my guts. And they have done any everything, including breaking the law, uh, to stop me from, from talking about that. And at this point, I actually believe they're just cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're just figuring, well, Advanced Nutrients has this stance. We don't have it, so they're trying to put the hammer down even harder. And what all it's doing is just harming our community and our entire industry. I say allow medical marijuana uh, patients to uh, get the advice that they need where it's legal. In states where it's not, well, don't engage them. But in medical marijuana states, by all means, that person is in there for help, and you're not giving it to them. And it just boggles my mind. Since when is giving a person a better quality of life wrong thing to do. Now, now, Mike, do, do people really need this kind of assistance? Because uh, there are plenty of oh, yeah. books about it. High Times Magazine is uh, going strong. And just in the interest of full disclosure, I uh, wrote an article for them once in 1975. <laughs> so I know a little bit about um, that magazine and that culture. And so it strikes me that the people who come to buy hydroponic supplies, whether it's the nutrients, the lights, or the other uh, equipment, uh, they're already pretty knowledgeable, and can't they get everything they need on the uh, World Wide Web Internet's thing? (laughs) You would think, but there's nothing like face-to-face and and someone being able to hold your hand and walk you through the process. And there's a lot of misinformation that's out there, and... A lot of people, they want to get into hydroponics and they might want to use rock wool or hydroton or one of these more advanced mediums. Plus, the person's sick, they're in pain, they have uh, limited capabilities. So based on that, you have to assess what this person can and can't do. So it's like anything. It's, uh, it's like going into a hardware store. You can, you can go online and you can learn how to build a deck. But it's a total another thing if you can get the guy out of the hardware store to come to your house and, and show you how to build the deck and uh, be there to hold your hand when you've when you got questions. Because basically, there's an, the Internet is not as interactive as being in front of a person and dealing with a person. There's mm-hmm. just a lot more that happens there. Plus, you form a relationship and you have the best interest of your client. So, so is the mantra of the the big three in this industry? Uh, don't tell, just sell. <laughs> well, it, it goes beyond that. Even some of the other nutrient companies that are competitors are are also involved in that as well. And that's oh, and why they're they're also protecting them 
by doing this. It's, it's actually pretty ugly. It's not even don't don't tell, don't sell. It's it's if you do, we will pull uh, our lines of credit from you. Not only that, but we won't sell to you. And it even goes it goes further than just that. That's only the tip of the iceberg. They also control the lines of credit that these store owners have. They decide how much ACH they're going to get, which is called automatic clearinghouse, which is someone puts like writes an order with a company, they put it in, they immediately draw the money out of the bank account. It's better than COD. It's you're actually taking the cash out before the people get the goods, mm-hmm. and so they get together because it's so lucrative for them. They get together and they decide who gets what percentage of ACH. Not only that, but who gets terms and how much lines of credit. They literally trade store owners. Lines of credit, like those bubblegum cards, those baseball cards, and that's really highly illegal. And they also, the CEO of one of the companies, Craig Hargraves of Sunlight Supply, this is the CEO of a $100 million-plus company, calling store owners up and saying, if you sell advanced nutrients, we will pull our nutrients, our, our whole, not, not just our nutrients, but all our supplies from you. And, and not only that, but I'm going to tell all the other, my buddies, I call them the good old boys club, and, and, and the nutrient companies and the other suppliers, the Hydro Farm and Wilmington Wholesale and General Hydroponics and Botanicare, not to sell to you. And in fact, if they hear a store owner is carrying, and, and so they bark a lot. And at the end of the day, though, they, uh, they've done it to a few store owners, but a few store owners have just, you know, basically given the finger and say, hey, too bad. And so there's advanced nutrients in the store. And what happens is then all the vendors come in and start harassing the store owner to get our nutrient line out. And it's just like, man, I just want to work with everybody in the industry. I've made numerous calls to all the CEOs of this company. And to date, I've only had one. That was Mr. Hargraves actually called me back after I made a video about two weeks ago, calling him out on his illegal practices. And, uh, now, now, Mike. Now, Mike, there's no intention of there's no intention of changing. And here's the thing: even last week, he's still calling store owners, threatening them. It's it's just like, come on, this is in California. This is a medical marijuana legal state. Enough is enough. Start helping these people. And that's why I told him, you need to be helping people, not hurting our community. But he doesn't see that. Now, uh, do, now, now, Mike, explain to us where you feel they cross the line from muscular, aggressive business practices to try to eliminate uh, competition and drive out uh, what they see, I guess, as a new entrant to their marketplace. And what actually has crossed the line into what you believe is illegal activity? Well, actually, if you look at the RICO, they're actually breaking federal law by doing it. One, you can't run a monopoly. One, you, you can't. And, and let's let's just define let's just define RICO. That's the racketeering law that has been used oh, yeah. to lock up a lot of mobsters. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so this is what I find really just the irony of this whole thing. They're worried about marijuana growers, which on a federal level is way down on the bottom of their stuff. Where RICO is at the very top of what they would love to prosecute people for. And so they've traded this this little thing about worried about marijuana medical marijuana that's legal, and Obama says he's not going to bother anyone, or instead to uh, start uh, running a criminal organization, essentially, mm-hmm. amongst themselves. 
And so that's when I crossed the line is whenever you form a monopoly, just that alone. But then you start dealing with people's lines of credit. And then you start calling stores and telling what they can and can't do, where they can open their stores and where they can't open their stores. That's just un-American. Plain and simple. It's wrong. Now, do they have franchise contracts like McDonald's? Because McDonald's does tell their uh, store owners where they can be and how many burgers they got to sell every month. So there, there are models of, of top-down franchise businesses in this country. Absolutely. And that's a whole different ballgame because these aren't franchises, and the person's been assigned a contractual agreement to do that. The only thing, these are independent stores, mom-pop operations, who just want to make a living. And now they got to be mired down in this BS created by these guys in constant fear-mongering. And we see it all the time in governments, and, and, and uh, even our own government, unfortunately, engages in fear-mongering. And all it does is just make life miserable for everybody. But now they're taking it to another level, a personal level that affects people's livelihoods, not only our community and the health and the care that they're getting, but the store owners feeding their families. And they don't give a rat's ass. And I think that's just unfortunate and wrong, and it needs to change. And I'm going to change it one way or another. I'm going to change it. Uh, it takes me years. But the way things are going and how many store owners have come to me, I believe very quickly that uh, they are going to have to change or go to jail. And that is... Uh, well, let me let me offer you a little story and and see if there's any parallel here. Uh, I've been uh, doing yoga for a long time, and about uh, eight or nine years ago, I started going to my local Bikram yoga uh, studio. And Bikram Chowdhury is a man who came to the U.S. from India, and he has uh, pulled together the teachings of many different Indian yogis uh, to create uh, what he calls Bikram yoga. And I want to stress that it's been really good for me, and I like the practice and, and the process, but I'm offended by his business practices, because what he did is in the first 15 or 20 years while, uh, after he came to California, he trained thousands of people, and they paid a fee to learn his program through these training uh, uh, sessions. And they came away with a certificate. And uh, at that point, they were free to do what they wanted with it. They could teach, they could open a studio, they could do nothing. Well, <clears throat> a family in my backyard called the Macaulays opened a, a, a couple. They had two or three different studios where they practiced Bikram yoga. And this is where you turn up the heat and everybody sweats a lot, and that's, that's part of the, uh, the whole program. Well, uh, at a certain point, they received a letter from an attorney for uh, Bikram, Inc., saying that uh, he was asserting uh, franchise rights and that they had to follow certain new rules and regulations, and, and I believe there was a revenue share uh, imposed as well. And the Macaulays, I thought rather uh, uh, resourcefully, decided to put together a group of similarly uh, situated studio owners, and they called it Open Source Yoga. And they went into federal court uh, on a civil level, not a criminal level. And uh, I believe they ended up settling out of court, and Bikram bought uh, their studios and now runs them as a franchised operation. But I'm wondering if that model might work for you, where you could align 
with the retailers who have been threatened and perhaps some who might have actually uh, uh, had their product lines pulled or uh, their business relationships with uh, one of these big three companies damaged or cut off and uh, turn that into a civil case because, as you know, in civil court, the burden of proof is not as high as in criminal court. It's the preponderance of the evidence. And uh, it, it seems that you might be able to prevail uh, more easily uh, in, a, in a civil courtroom. Perhaps, and that's, it's not a bad thing to look at. I have looked at it. I'll, I will tell you, I haven't been involved with legal cases before, and they take a huge emotional and financial toll on you. So, and I just, I'm, I've made a few, I've made a few videos and put them out there, and I'm just basically saying, guys, just straighten up and and fly straight. And they refuse to do it, and it might have to come down to a major civil suit. I uh, am aware of one that's coming their way by another uh, independent, smaller distributor, and uh, perhaps maybe I should join him in that. However, I. It's so clear-cut what he's doing, and, and I've been talking to a lot of store owners and getting a lot of information from them, and basically doing that, except I would just rather pursue it criminally and basically give them a couple more warnings, and if they don't do it, then just basically let the law deal with it, as they should, and for some reason, if it doesn't work out that way, you still have your uh, civil Mm-hmm. Taking them. Quite frankly, I don't want to make money off of them. I just want them to stop what they're doing and treat our community right. What they don't realize is it's important to put the community first. Now, you know, you're doing this podcasting thing, and you understand social media, and you understand the importance of community. These businesses have not figured out in this day and age with the Internet, with social media, that if you do not put your community first, your community will have nothing to do with you. And we've had a lot of store owners say, Big Mike, you bring in bulbs, ballast, everything I need, I will stop doing business with them. Because here's the thing. These store owners remember how they were treated and how they were spoken to. And when they get the opportunity to go someplace else, they will jump ship. So eventually they will be put out of business because there's other young and up-and-coming companies that are filling that, that void what these guys have created for themselves. And they just don't see it. And it's a shame because if we worked all together as a strong community, not only could we move, let's say, medical marijuana forward in the other states where it isn't, because let's face it, that's just a big part of hydroponics, but we could also do more for our community, a lot more for our community. Still, it's no one any good. So I'm trying to stay out of the court system as much as I possibly can. Well, and and Big Mike, uh, I think there's a very interesting model across the bay from me here in the city of Oakland, which I think most people know is uh, a city with high unemployment and inadequate uh, resources and revenues to provide what they need. And uh, the medical marijuana clubs there operate in a very uh, transparent, above-board way. A guy named Richard Lee has uh, started what he calls Oaksterdam University, which is a training program for people who want to cultivate medical marijuana. And uh, he voluntarily uh, sponsored a ballot measure in Oakland to tax their business so that they could become contributing members of the community. 
And Lee is uh, bankrolling the ballot measure that is expected to uh, be voted on this coming November 2010, uh, which would legalize and tax uh, marijuana, whether it's medical or not, uh, uh, in, in the future here. And I think that's an interesting model of people who are coming out of the shadows and uh, really throwing off the, uh, the burdens of prohibition and acknowledging that this is legal, that it is something that is very helpful, particularly to cancer patients and others who uh, really benefit from the use of marijuana for medicinal purposes. And they are, uh, I think, setting a, a, a model or a, a pattern uh, for the emergence of this huge industry uh, from the, the uh, black market into uh, daylight. And I agree. Richard is a, a pillar in our community, and we do work with Oaksterdam with their training program, by the way. Uh, and, and the medical marijuana community has all embraced what we're doing and understands community. The Good Old Boys Club, Hydrofarm, Sunlight Supply, Bloomington Wholesale, General Hydroponics, Botanic Care, Technoflora, they don't. And they've, they've literally turned them back and are shunning the very people that they're making their money from and feeding their families with. I find that absolutely appalling and un-American what they're doing, and it has to stop. It just, it, it, it must, and you're 100% right. We, our community is making a difference, a huge difference. I, I believe it will be legal in California very shortly. Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the polling shows that uh, there's still work to be done to persuade particularly older voters. Uh, but I, I do think that it has become so uh, widespread and above ground that most people don't buy into the fear-mongering over, over marijuana. I think that uh, most people understand that uh, there are much more dangerous uh, drugs out there, uh, like crystal meth and cocaine and heroin, and that uh, it has been a long-running mistake to categorize marijuana with uh, more dangerous substances that are addictive and that do produce uh, psychotic behavior. Uh, neither of those is uh, credibly linked to marijuana usage. Correct. Uh, I agree with you 100% there. And people, I mean, they all read from madness videos. I mean, movies, if you've seen any of them, they're just absurd. At the end of the day, people know the truth. They know what's right and what's wrong, and they know when they're being lied to. And unfortunately, some people in our community don't realize that. Now, Big Mike, you've also become a publisher. I'm looking at the website, rosebudmag.com, and it's an interesting mix of uh, hydroponic uh, growing tips and uh, uh, kind of information about that along with sports, dating and sex, health, fine living. Uh, what, what, what's the, the concept behind the magazine? Well, in that magazine, we don't talk about marijuana at all. Uh, we introduce people to our world, our community of hydroponics. That is a lifestyle magazine. Now, why would I do a lifestyle magazine? Well, because I want to spread the word. Now I get to put my tentacles out in all these other areas, and I get to introduce people to the world of hydroponics. They come in for the lifestyle stuff, and they go, well, this hydroponic stuff, and they start reading the articles and uh, taking it in, and they go, you know what? 
I think I'll go and get me a little grow unit, a little arrow garden or something, and start growing. It is a vehicle to expand our community because the good old boys have never had a plan to do that. So I came up with my own plan and said, you know what? Without a magazine, a really high-quality magazine, the writers for that magazine and the website come from Rolling Stone, Wired, Forbes. Of course, the magazine business is, is in a turmoil, so there's a lot of great people out there who are writing. And we've got some of the top writers in the, in, in the country writing for us, and we spend a lot of money on that magazine because we want to attract more people to our community. And the irony of it is the good old boys club, because we have the magazine now, went out and told all the vendors that if they were if they advertise in Rosebud magazine, that they will be cut off from all the big distributors, essentially putting them out of business. And as some of these smaller distributors get a little bit larger over the next few years, that paradigm is going to shift or, of course, if they end up in jail. So anyways, that's what the magazine's all about. It's just basically spreading the word, spreading the gospel. And is it going to be available at newsstands, or is it a subscription uh, distribution plan? I'm glad you asked that question. It's available free of charge at all hydroponic stores. You can walk in any hydroponic store, and it's complimentary to all hydroponic growers. That says it right on the cover. In about mm, six months, it'll be on the newsstand. The newsstand game is a, a game where you don't make money. In fact, you go negative every month around the newsstand. But what it's good for is the national advertisers. They see and on the newsstand in the airports, and because of that, they're more apt to come in uh, to the, uh, as, as advertisers. And by the way, we're the first hydroponics magazine in the world that has national advertisers. We have Yamaha, we have Chevrolet. Uh, in fact, I'm going this weekend to uh, talk to Coca-Cola and Kellogg's, mm. uh, as a matter of fact, um, I'm coming into the magazine. So I want to also, that magazine... Not only is it to build our community, but it's also meant to close the chasm between mainstream and hydroponics, because a lot of people think it's just a bunch of wild-haired, running-out-in-the-woods guys growing weed, and, and it's not. It's a lot more than that. So uh, I want to close that chasm as well, and that's another goal of the magazine. And, uh, yeah, eventually it'll be on the news. Says, right now the circulation is 100,000. We print 100,000. Actually, that's not fabricated number. 100,000 100, copies gets printed every single month and distributed into the marketplace. And it's not enough. That magazine will have to go to about 200,000 circulation to satisfy this marketplace. And at the rate this marketplace is growing, it'll probably end up at 300,000, 400,000 in now, the next few years. Now, don't the experts tell you you're going to need babes with boobs on the cover to sell 300000 Well, you know what? Here's the thing. We do use celebrity. Uh, uh, we have Justin Kirk on the front cover. Michael Moore is on the second edition. We have Vigo Mortensen on this month's edition. And we do have a pullout of, of just like Playboy Styles. So the first month we're doing it lays, lays out, and there's an attractive woman. It happens to be Aubrey O'Day for the March issue. That's pretty cool. And she's clothed, and there's no nudity in the magazine. But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously women sell. They've been selling everything from cars to soap for years, and they've done thousands of studies on it. And if you put a woman in a magazine, you, know, you sell more magazines. <laughs> on the cover, though, you're not going to see, you know, like uh, just like, let's say, FHM or, or Razor, where they put uh, 
a hot chicks for having a hot chick. We're going with celebrity. We actually surveyed our community extensively and got thousands of responses back and asked them, well, what do you want in a, in a, in a magazine? So based on those uh, replies, we gave them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. We'll use celebrity on the cover. And uh, we see uh, April will have the L.A. Ink Girls uh, on there, and then May it looks like Brad Pitt. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> a little eye candy for the girls, too. <laughs> yeah, there's, some, there's, some, there's some eye candy for you. I guess you could say that with uh, in the magazine as well. With some well, and I, I, hope you can res- I hope you can resolve the rumors because at my check stand, uh, I, get, I get whiplash because one magazine says that uh, Brad and Angelina have split up and that Brad's back with Jen, but then Jen's dumped him and rejected him, and I, I just can't keep it all straight. So I hope you'll be able to get to the bottom of that. Never know. Big Mike, great to talk with you, and good luck on your battle with uh, the big hydro guys. Thank you very much, Peter, and thanks for having me on today. It has been wonderful. All right. My pleasure. And once again, the website, rosebudmag.com, if you'd like to take a look. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are welcome. Peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to Until we meet again Happy trails